Hi everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Under the Lemon Tree. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about episode 9, The Green Council. Um, so I guess I'll start with just some general thoughts and reactions. You know, this was a very suspenseful episode. I like how in the uh, inside the episode, they kind of talked about how they wanted this to feel like a classic, like suspense thriller. You know, we're trying to find Aegon and... We're learning more about him as a character and a person, seeing the person that's about to be crowned king. And um, I thought I thought it was really fascinating giving, you know, greater insight into how involved Aegon is and like the twisted underworld of King's Landing and just seeming to emphasize even more so how unfit he is to rule and how much he doesn't desire that. Um... Rainies and Melly's, of course, were absolute showstoppers in this, and that was probably my favorite scene in the entire episode. I've never loved Rainies more than in this moment, just in this show of strength, and you know how how Ryan Condal said in the inside the episode that she's not this this passive person. She's not just gonna sit back, and I felt like she was really taking charge and really putting her foot down, showing what side of the war she's on, and. You know, the fact that she could have easily just wiped out all the greens right there, but she chose Mercy. Um, of course, part of me was disappointed. Part of me just wanted her to Dracarys them and avoid the whole war. Um, but, you know, it definitely shows something about her character. And, you know, I'll, I'll get more into that later in this episode. Um, it just really feels like, I mean, I feel like I've said this about several of the episodes, but you can feel the threat of war just looming right over the horizon like it feels like we really are on the brink of war now and that war is about to break out at any moment and that that's something I really liked about this episode and I'm excited to dig into it share some of my thoughts so starting right from the beginning I I love just how solemn you know and somber and kind of eerie the red keep looked right at the beginning of this episode you know it was so empty in the wake of Viserys' death. It's like they wanted us to feel his absence. Like the Red Keep just looks so cold and so vacant without him. And it's so interesting when you contrast that with the way the Red Keep was in the beginning of the story, you know, very lively, very full of people, very, you know, full of light and fire and happy. But now without him, it's just, it's so vacant and so cold. So right away, you can feel the weight of of his loss and his absence, for sure. And, you know, the only thing breaking that silence and that stillness and the emptiness is a little bird, you know, uh, a little spy master walking around, uh, going to Talia, telling telling her the, the king is dead, who then, you know, goes to the queen, which is just amazing that the first person to find out that the king was dead was a, a little spy in in the Red Keep, which I think is interesting because I think that ties into what Laris tells uh, tells Allison later about how there's a whole network of spies here in the Red Keep that your father, you know, Otto exploits, and that's how people always know what's going on here. And the fact that something that significant, you know, the death of the king, which obviously will have major consequences for the show and will lead to this succession were to come. The fact that not even one of the people within the official like royal court and the royal family found out about this first. It was one of the spies within the Red Keep, you know, taking their secrets and selling them and using them for their own devices. And I think that's a big tell. It shows just how powerful this network of spies is and how this is something, you know, either to be wiped out, taken out at, at the root, taken out of the head like Laris says or something to you know exploit and use to your own advantage and use that power to benefit you the way Otto does and the way Laris does so um it's interesting and I feel like seeing no one except this little spy walking around just this very vacant cold empty red keep Reminded me a lot of what Viserys said in the first episode after his his wife and son died. And, you know, right away, 
they had a small council meeting to try and determine who the successor would be. And, you know, Viserys wasn't having any of it. He said, you know, my wife and son are dead and I'm not going to tolerate these, you know, crows, I think he said, or rats coming to feast on his corpse or feast on their corpses, which is interesting because it seems like these little spies, you know, are an example of the little crows, little rats coming to feast on his corpse. You know, these are people who now that now that Viserys is dead, people are, you know, in a race against time to try and install who they think should be heir. And Alice and Donato were on a race against time to get to Aegon first to manipulate him and install him as heir um, with their own intentions in mind. So I think it's interesting. It's like it's almost like Viserys was foretelling what was to come. You know, the way he felt like people were, quote unquote, feasting on the corpse of his wife and son for their own means. That's exactly what people are doing in this episode um, with his corpse, you know, on the in the wake of his death. So I thought that was really interesting. And then after Talia tells Alicent that the king is dead and she rushes out and says, you know, Talia, stay here, don't tell anyone. She obviously goes and tells Masaria, because Masaria seems to find out not too long after this. Um, and I thought it was interesting how uh, a little while after this, we see Talia lighting candles in a window. And it seems like she's being very secretive. She keeps looking over her shoulder, like she doesn't want to be caught. And I wonder if this is a secret signal, if her lighting these candles is her signal to Masaria for them to to meet and exchange information um and if that's the case this really reminded me of uh game of thrones because we see that sansa in uh season five in winterfell she uses candles as in, in a window as a means of secret communication so this this felt like a little bit of a callback to that or gave me the impression that that's what these candles were for, that it was a, a secret signal um, that, you know, it's time for a certain message to be sent, which, yeah, I wonder if Talia was alerting Masaria, because that's definitely the impression that I got. Moving on to when Alicent then goes and meets with her father to tell, to tell, talk about how Viserys is dead, and to express that, according to her, on his deathbed, he told her he wants Aegon to be king, which of course we we know that not to be true. But it's funny that this whole you know conflict to come, it just reminded me of Game of Thrones because, um, so well, okay, a bit of a spoiler, you know, for the end of season one, I'll include a timestamp in the description. Um, this is just like when King Robert Baratheon gave his dying wish on his deathbed, and. The only witness there was Ned Stark. It's like when it comes to a king's final moments and his final words, ideally you gotta have multiple witnesses. You know, you need to have several people in that room because when there's only one person, you know, like Ned, like Alicent, it raises questions of, you know, whether or not that person is gonna be believed and, you know, whether or not this person is telling the truth about what the king's last words were, or if they're just trying to, you know, exploit it for their own devices. I mean, Ned Stark even got Robert's last words in writing and got Robert to sign it, but it didn't mean anything because, you know, Ned was the only witness. And by the time he brought the the decree forward, Joffrey was already named king and Cersei worked it up right in front of his face and said, you know, his words don't matter. We have a new king. Um, and it seems like there's a similar issue here, you know. If there were multiple witnesses, perhaps perhaps Alicent might not have so easily been able to claim that, oh, my um, Viserys wants Aeon to be king. Of course, that might not matter anyways, because Otto and the small council clearly already had a plan to put Aegon in place, as they made pretty clear earlier, so it, it might not have mattered what Viserys said anyway, but... It seems like a crux of this is Allison is insisting that these are Viserys' dying words. And, you know, it made me wonder if Allison really does believe that or not. You know, she she doesn't know anything about the, the, the Song of Ice and Fire, about Aegon the Conqueror's 
um, dream, um, his, you know, his foreseeing of the future. So she doesn't have any context for what Viserys is talking about. You know, he, he just hears um, Aegon and Prince and you have to do this and kind of just jumps to her own conclusions. Um, so yeah, it made me wonder if she truly believes that this is what Viserys meant or if she kind of is just jumping to her own conclusions and making her own, you know, interpretation of what Viserys said because she already wants her son to be king. So I think there's some there's some interesting ambiguity there. I'd love to hear what you guys think if Alicent truly believed that's what Viserys meant or if she was kind of twisting what she heard to to hear what she wanted to hear. Um and at first I was kind of confused why she was so disturbed to find out that the small council and her father had been planning to put Aegon on the throne all along. Um, because, like, you know, if she wanted her son to be king anyway, I was wondering, like, you know, why is she just so disturbed to find this out? But then, you know, in the inside of the episode, they said that despite the fact that she wanted Aegon to be king, she didn't want to go about it in such, like, a dastardly way and clearly didn't want to have Rhaenyra killed. So I do wonder if that's part of part of why she was disturbed. You know, it's also probably very alarming as a queen to find out that the small council who's supposed to be serving you and serving the king have been making their own plans behind your back. I wonder if that's part of it too, because that would be kind of a frightening thing to find out you know they're they're pulling the strings when you're the one who's supposed to be in power in 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 theory in some ways i also wondered if one of the reasons she was so disturbed to find out that the small council had been planning this for so long was because maybe she truly did want rainiera to become queen you know I, i did really believe her during that you know thanksgiving dinner scene as as people were calling it um in the last episode where she, you know, raises her cup to Rhaenyra and says she you'll be a good queen the same way she said in episode 3 that Rhaenyra would be a good queen and made me wonder if she if she really if she really felt that, if she really believed that cuz it felt very authentic to me when she said that. Like I wonder if perhaps she was coming around to the idea of Rhaenyra being queen, but I wonder if hearing these last words from Viserys that she interpreted as him saying Aegon should be king kind of rocked her world, I guess, made her change her mind. But then again, if this, if these vague words from Viserys that don't have much meaning or context to her, if that was all it took to sway her into thinking that Aegon should be king over Rhaenyra being queen, makes her wonder, makes you wonder if she wanted Aegon to be king the whole time. You know, if he could be swayed that easily by something so, so vague, you know. Um, so yeah, I guess I have my own questions of whether or not she really wanted Aegon to be king the whole time, or if she really was coming around to the idea of Rhaenyra taking power and just Viserys' last words changed her mind. I'm not, I'm not completely sure, but it is interesting seeing how either way she didn't want Rhaenyra to, and her sons and her children to be killed. Um, it, it was interesting during the small council meeting seeing, you know, how stressed she was and she didn't want it to come to this. It seems like she really cares for Rhaenyra in some sense in this way. She doesn't want to see her killed. She doesn't want this to happen, you know. Later in the episode, she talks about how she wants to send terms to Rhaenyra that she can accept without shame so that Aegon can be king, but she's hoping to not make Rhaenyra feel slighted. So I guess, all in all that, it seems like that was her goal, perhaps. To put Aegon in power, but to not have that lead to the death of Rhaenyra and her children, or any other, you know, dastardly outcome like that. It just makes me wonder, you know, what what did she think was going to happen? You know, did she think that the whole small council was going to agree that the rivals to Aegon's rule should be kept alive. Um, I mean, that's something we see a lot in Game of Thrones. You know, people, in order to secure their own claim, kill others who could be perceived as their rivals. So it it, it makes me wonder if, if Alicent truly believed that the small, small council would 
be on the same page with her as far as giving terms to Rhaenyra and not killing her or you know she was genuinely surprised saying that they wanted to kill Rhaenyra because that I mean that doesn't really surprise me but I, it makes me wonder why it surprised her uh, continuing on with this council scene um I have so much respect for Lord Beesbury and Harold Westerling you know they they were real ones they were loyal to, to the very end, especially Lord Beesbury. I love that he, he went out, I mean, he went out like a trooper. He was gonna stand up for Rhaenyra to, to the very end, and it even got him killed, you know, which was so sad. But it was so cool seeing how he went from being this kind of bumbling old man, like they said in inside the episode. I never really took him very seriously throughout the season. But seeing this final moment of him stand up for, for Rhaenyra and stand up for what was right really really warmed my heart really made me root for him which you know is sad because it was right at the end of his life little little did any of us know he'd be killed um but i respected him so much for his loyalty and same with harold westerling you know otto was commanding him to go to dragonstone and kill rainera and Nima and all their kids and he's just like yeah no i'm not i'm not doing that it it reminded me a lot of uh when barristan selmy quit in Game of Thrones and he just threw down his sword in front of Joffrey and said, you know, go ahead and add it to the others. You know, I'm not going to serve you anymore. And it was just a really badass, like, quitting scene. I got similar vibes of that from from Harold Westerling quitting. So, real respect to both of them. Lord Beesbury and and Sir Harold. They 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 really stuck to their guns and stuck to their morals. I, I really respect that. It was also kind of funny seeing the uh, the Lord Lannister uh, moving aside when when Kristen Cole and, and Harold Westerling got their swords out. Like, he just got out of his chair and moved aside. He was like, yeah, I'm not going to get in between these two guys with swords. And then he just kind of quietly slips back in after the conflict is done. It was kind of funny. <laughs> um, so moving on now. Well, actually, kind of going back to Otto commanding. Harold Westerling to go to Dragonstone and kill Rainier and all her kids. I want to know what made him think this would work. You know, Dragonstone is a very heavily fortified place, as well as the fact that Rhaenyra and Daemon and several of their kids all have dragons. Like, what really made Otto think that Harold Westerling could just show up with a bunch of the knights and have swords and just kill all of them. He said, you know, do it quick and clean. And no, like, I don't know what made him think they could get away with this. I mean, I guess maybe unless they played it off as like some kind of warm welcome. But I don't know how they could pull that off when they're showing up with all their, you know, swords and their armor. And there's so many of them. And like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what made Otto think that this would really work. <laughs> that they could just show up at Dragonstone kill all of them and it would be easy like no like that that would have never worked anyway so uh, it was kind of confusing to me when Otto commanded that it's like that would have never worked so moving on now to when we see Alicent and Helena I thought it was interesting what Helena said well I I like paying a lot of attention now of course to what Helena says since she seems to be able to tell the future and be kind of a dreamer in that sense. Her her words seem to have a lot of importance, so I definitely like paying attention to what she has to say. And in this scene, she said, you know, she was looking at her kids, cross-stitching the spider, and she said, um, you know, maybe it's our fate to crave what's given to another. If one possesses a thing, the other will take it away. Um, which is interesting, because she could be said to be talking about a lot of things. She could be talking about the crown itself, the throne itself you know we're about to see this succession war and this thing this royal power perhaps that's given to Aegon that Rhaenyra perhaps is going to take away or try to take away so she could be talking about that I thought it was interesting too because her words reminded me a lot of kind of the the beginning of the animosity between Rhaenyra and Alicent because it seems like Alicent resented Rhaenyra for her you know her sexual freedom you know she goes and had this this night out with Damon 
in episode four. Um, she confronts her about it. And, you know, now Rhaenyra has had these bastard children who she's been able to get away with passing off as trueborn, even though everyone knows the truth, you know. And in that fateful scene in, in episode seven, when she tries to, you know, stab Rhaenyra and maim her son, and she confronts Rhaenyra for, you know, getting away with, with everything, pretty much, for because of her royal privilege. And, you know, she she seems to resent Rhaenyra for that in that moment. And so it seems like the root of some of their animosity is the fact that Alicent resents Rhaenyra for seemingly getting away with things. You know, specifically things involving, like, sexual, quote-unquote, what she sees as immorality, you could say. Um, and that seems to frustrate Alicent because she is someone who is always played by the rules and it's never brought her any kind of joy or happiness or fulfillment, you know, she's always just done what, what she's told, um, which is something we'll get into more later. Um, so I thought what Helena said could also be connected to that, you know, she says it's fate to crave what's given to another, maybe Helena just craved freedom or some kind of independence and some kind of choice that she felt like Rhaenyra had you know she got to choose she got to choose Harwin Strong essentially and chose to make him the father of her children she got to choose Damon and marry him you know so it, it makes me wonder if that's that could be something that Helena's speaking to as well that perhaps Allison craved what was given to Rhaenyra that that privilege and that freedom um, another thing I think this could be referencing to is, well, for, for now, it's just a theory, but some people suspect that Amond has kind of a thing for Helena, and that kind of connects back to, to episode seven, when, um, Aegon and Amond are, are talking about Helena, and Aegon's like, oh man, like, I can't believe I have to marry her, like, I'm not interested, and Amond's like, you know, I would do my duty, I would marry her, like, I wish we were betrothed. Like, it kind of implied that perhaps he, he had some interest in Helena. And I know there's definitely some some theories going around right now that Helena's children are actually Aemon's and not Aegon's. And that perhaps they have an affair going on or have an interest in each other. So I, I wonder if Helena's words are speaking to that as well. Perhaps Aemon was, like, was craving what was given to another, was craving and, and wanting... Helena, but she was given to Aegon instead. So it's interesting that Helena's words, you know, which have shown to be kind of prophetic, can connect to a lot of different things and possible, you know, plot threads and conflicts that we're seeing in the show right now. So uh, I, I thought it was a very interesting line, and I'm curious what she meant by that. Going off of that, I'm curious as to what her beast beneath the boards line means now we've heard that several times by this point and it seems like it can refer to a lot of things it could refer to the system of spies in the red keep you know you could say they're kind of underground beneath the boards of the red keep so she could be saying you know beware that beast it could be more generally just talking about corruption boiling up in the red keep um I've heard some say that they think her Beast Beneath the Boards line was referring to uh, Rhaenys and Melis, uh, who came up through through the floorboards, you could say, through the floor at the end of the episode. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm still curious as to what she means by that. I would like to hear what you guys think, because I've heard several theories. Um, something that Something that I like is throughout this episode... There is this this musical theme, like this tune, the same melody that continues throughout most of the episode, but it just kind of changes shape, changes form a little bit, uh, changes its sound to kind of fit with with the the mood of the scene. You know, it kind of rises in intensity um, after this this scene with Helena, when all the servants are being locked in so they can't go and spread the word. Um, it starts from the very beginning of the episode, you know, very solemn and somber as we see how empty the Red Keep is. And I think it's interesting that they just can continue this, this same 
musical theme throughout the episode and just change its its shape and its tone a little bit to fit the mood of the scene. I thought that was a really interesting detail. Again, with people who we see being loyal to the end, being real ones to the end, in the scene where Otto brings all the lords to get them to swear to, to Aegon instead of Rhaenyra, you know, we see Lord Caswell, who's kind of positioned himself to be a, an ally to Rhaenyra throughout, you know, after she gave birth. In episode six, he was the first to congratulate her, and he was the only one to greet her and Damon when they, when they showed up in um, the last episode, and, you know, he, same here, he stays loyal to the end, you know, he, he refused, he, um, he bent the knee and said, long live the king, but clearly it, it's because he was trying to stay alive so that he could continue to support Rhaenyra, and he tried to escape, but then he was executed for it, you know, and he was hung in the Red Keep for all to see, you know, almost like an ominous warning, like this is what happens to people who betray the crown. So another character in this episode, loyal to Rhaenyra to the end, I really respect it. I also wonder what happens to House Fell. They pretty overtly say, you know, we're we're keeping we're keeping faith with Rhaenyra and we're we're keeping our oath. And then they're just led away by guards, and it made me wonder, you know, were they executed just like Lord Caswell was? Because I don't remember seeing them after that. So I do wonder if they're still alive or not, and if they'll play a part later. And here as. Eric and Ark and, and Kristen and Aemond are all searching the streets for Aegon. Um, it's interesting, we really get an inside look into the kind of person Aegon is and um, how much he, you know, d enjoys the depravity of these children fighting viciously. And, you know, it. we're getting some insight, some more insight into the fact that he doesn't have, you know, a good character he's not a good person and he by extension wouldn't be a good king you know and he he even states later that he's not interested in being king at all that he doesn't have the temperament he's not suited for it and this goes back to something i've talked about in previous episodes of 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 the podcast where this is the problem with this feudal system with this monarchy in westeros it's putting people in power who don't want it and who wouldn't be good for it. You know, it upholds someone like Aegon simply because he's a man, even though he's someone who clearly has these really depraved interests. You know, he has, you know, attacked, assaulted people like Diana, that servant girl in the last one. Um, you know, he also just has no interest in ruling and it's sad that this kind of system would uphold that person or someone like that as the ideal heir over someone perhaps who is interested in it and someone who seems to have a better temperament and more wisdom and more of an interest in being a ruler like Rhaenyra and it overlooks her simply because of her gender. So it's interesting we're seeing the development of, of this idea and something that I've talked about before how this is the problem with this system. And this is why this system needs to be challenged and needs to be overthrown. And that's what I respect so much about Rhaenyra and her supporters, because that's what they're, that's what I see as them trying to do. Rhaenyra is defying this system by advocating for her own place on the throne, you know, with the support of her father. But she says she wants to create a new order, you know, where, where women like her can be heir. We also see in this in this search for Prince Aegon that he has a bastard and that it likely is one of many. And as we know from Game of Thrones, royal bastards are a problem because they could be possible claimants to the throne. This is probably why Alicent gave Diana in, in the last episode, Moon Tea, to ensure that Aegon didn't impregnate her with a royal bastard who then... You know, the issue with royal bastards is when they grow up, they can stake their own claim to the throne because of their royal blood. Kind of dipping back into Game of Thrones spoilers. Again, I'll put a timestamp in the description. We see, you know, one way this issue of royal bastards is 
is addressed is in really dastardly ways, you can say. You know, when when uh, Joffrey finds out that he might be Cersei or Jamie's bastard and that he might not therefore have a claim to the throne, but that uh, the real king, uh, Prince uh, King Robert, has many royal bastards throughout the city. Um, although he doesn't necessarily believe that he's a bastard, he understands that some people do believe it. So he orders all of King Robert's bastards to be murdered just to make sure that none of them can compete with his claim to the throne. So I think it's interesting that here in House of the Dragon, we're seeing kind of the seeds of another similar potential conflict coming up when there's royal bastards around. They can stake their own claim to the throne and it can lead to more succession problems. So it's interesting how we're seeing the roots of that established here in this episode, an issue that we also saw explored in Game of Thrones. So, and then, you know, Aemond gives this speech to, to Kristen Cole about why he believes he should be king and why he thinks he should he would be good at it. You know, it's a very, like, Renly Baratheon-esque speech like we saw in Game of Thrones where he says to Ned Stark, he says, I should be king. You know, I would be a good king. People like me. I'm a, I'm a pleasant person. I should be king. So it definitely gave me Renly vibes when he said this. A very Renly speech. I thought it was interesting, too, how Kristen Cole replies to Aemon by saying, I know what it is to toil for what others are freely given. Which, again, ties back to Helena's line about wanting things that are given to others. And at first, I was trying to figure out what Kristen meant by this exactly. I wonder if he was talking about, you know, his own status in the world, you know, as a Kingsguard, as a knight. You know, clearly this was something he had to work for, whereas that kind of status, you could argue, was just given to someone like Prince Damon because of his royal status or, you know, something that he seems to resent about Rhaenyra is he, he calls her spoiled, you know, perhaps he sees her royal privilege as something that freely gives her certain privileges and freedoms that he, as, you know, someone not even from a very particularly, you know, prominent royal, I mean, noble family or anything like that, um, doesn't have opportunities like that. So I, I wonder if that's what he was he was talking about you know his own place in the world to comparison to these these royals especially Rhaenyra someone he holds a lot of bitterness and resentment for um and I thought it was interesting how that connects back to what Helena said earlier moving on to when we see Laris talking to Otto and Otto mentions how Laris has been spending a lot of time with Alicent and Laris is like, you know, well, that can, that can ultimately be of benefit to you, Otto. Uh, it made me wonder what Laris's end goal is, you know, if he's trying to build an alliance with Otto, but at the same time with Alicent. Like, I wonder if Laris's goal really is just power and influence and control. And perhaps he sees this just as another opportunity to, you know, he can have this alliance and this power over Alicent. Perhaps he wants that as well with Otto. He wants to perhaps, you know, increase uh, his influence, his sphere of influence. Again, we hear this same beautiful musical theme continuing throughout these scenes when when Amond and Kristen are going through the streets. It's more mysterious and suspenseful. And now when we come to the scene of Viserys' body being prepared for, um, for cremation, um, it, the music has more strings, you know, more string instruments, and it's slower, so much more somber. And very interesting. Um, I thought it was interesting, too, seeing Alicent crying over Viserys' body. I found this pretty surprising, actually, because at least definitely... By the later half of her life, I definitely did not get the impression that Alicent loved Viserys. You know, it seems like she saw him taking care of him, you know, physically, being trapped, you know, in this, this sexual relationship with him, especially when she was just a, a young teen. 
and she was not interested in having you know and, and taking care of children when she was very young you know she seemed to just feel very trapped you know in her situation it it made it hard for me to believe that she you know really really loved him and felt love for him because you know she never wanted any of this she never wanted to marry him and be trapped in this life that her her father manipulated her in having um so I was actually pretty surprised seeing her crying over him and it made me wonder if she perhaps does mourn for him in some way and maybe maybe she did have a certain sort of love for him um I thought that was interesting because I really wasn't expecting that I'd love to hear what you guys think about what exactly she was thinking and feeling crying over Viserys's body because I, I found that kind of surprising kind of unexpected um moving on to when Allison has her conversation with Rainey's which I just love this scene because it's just Rainey's being a badass and flexing and making me respect and love her even more um you know she's clearly being very manipulative she's calling Rainey's cousin you know implying some kind of you know connection there and she's saying that oh you should have been queen you know and even Rainey's is like I never thought you would say that so she's clearly trying to manipulate her um you know she grabs her and gets in her face um and I like that Rainey's just doesn't take it you know she calls her out for imprisoning her she says you know oh you're smarter than I thought you'd be Alice Hightower you know calling her by her full name instead of you know your grace or any sort of exalted title just calling her her name kind of putting her on a level ground with her um and I really appreciate how Rainey's calls out Alison for being a, a servant and kind of a, a slave to the men in her life you know she says um you still you know you toil in the service of men and you know you desire not to be free but to make a window in the wall of your prison I thought that was such a powerful line and I really enjoyed hearing Rainey said that because it's true you know and I think it's part of the the tragedy of Alicent which is something I've talked about in uh, my previous episodes you know it is heartbreaking seeing that she's just been a victim of this patriarchal system her whole life you know she's just been controlled by men her whole life and it's heartbreaking you know she was controlled by her father and and did what he told her to do and that led her to seducing the king and marrying the king even though she didn't want to and you know she was a slave to Viserys in some ways you know being trapped in this sexual relationship with him that she didn't want having to be a caretaker for him and having to care for these young children when she herself was just a teenager and just a child you know um I thought it was interesting and so powerful seeing Rainey sum this up and just this one short line and then when she leans into Alicent and says you know have you never imagined yourself on the iron throne I thought that was so interesting because it felt like she's challenging Alicent and saying you know have you never thought about your own wants and desires have you never um desired for power for yourself and for your own sake you know and the way Alicent tears up when she says that I thought was really interesting because I thought it was her, you know, realizing that she's been a slave her whole life for her, for the men in her life. And I like how, I really like how she confronts Otto later about this. I found it so, so satisfying to see her finally standing up for herself and finally understanding what her father has done to her and manipulating her and controlling her all her life. And, you know, her father says, you know, well, I, I, if that's true, then my manipulation got you to be queen, you know, like, is that not what you wanted? And Allison was like, well, how would I know? I only ever wanted what you told me to want. And it was so powerful and, and so heartbreaking and so satisfying seeing Allison finally, finally see this and finally understand this. Likely, it seems like as a result of what Rainey said, it seems like what Rainey said to her really had an impact on her and made her realize this and, and, and see this truth about about her life and how much it's been controlled by, by men like her father. And um, I love this so much because this is exactly what I said in an earlier episode of my podcast that Allison shouldn't resent Rhaenyra for the life that she has, you know, being 
trapped Mary to the king and doing her father's bidding, you know, even though she didn't want to. Um, I've said before that she she should resent her father, that it really is her father's fault, that her father essentially ruined her life by manipulating her and putting her into this this situation, to the, the life that she has now. You know, as, as I said before, she could have been betrothed to and married some lord far away who had nothing to do with the royal family. And if that happened, Alicent would have never had children who lives perhaps could be threatened by Rhaenyra's claim to the throne. You know, this really is a situation that Otto put her in, put her in a situation where her kids could be killed. And it's terrible and it's heartbreaking. And this is exactly what I was saying. She should blame Otto for the way her life has turned out. Not Rhaenyra. She shouldn't feel resentment for Rhaenyra. She should feel that for her father. And I feel like in this moment, she finally does. And she sees that. And it was so satisfying to see and so devastating. Um, again, it's a very Cersei moment to me. You know, despising her father for controlling her. Because Cersei felt the same way. She felt a lot of deep resentment for her father making uh, making her marry Robert Baratheon, you know, who never truly loved her and never truly treated her right. Um, so this is even more of Alicent showing off her inner Cersei, you know, in another way that she is really similar to Cersei, I think. But they're both in their own ways, you know, victims of this system, had to be married off to these kings who, you know, they weren't happy with and didn't always treat them well. And, um, you know, their fathers manipulated them into the situations and they, they, they feel that resentment, of course, for being controlled in that way by their fathers and more broadly by the system. Um, so that was very interesting to see. I really enjoyed that moment of seeing her stand up for herself against her father. Moving on to Otto and Masaria's meeting. Um, I liked this scene because I felt like it gave a better sense of what Masaria's motives were, because that was something I was confused about. You know, I wondered, you know, why exactly is Masaria trying to be a spy master? You know, what does she gain from this other than, you know, wealth? It seems, you know, she's been dressing in very nice clothes and has these jewelry, this jewelry. Like, it seems like she's doing well for herself and she has this network of little spies, you know, like Varys's little birds in Game of Thrones. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't get a sense of what her greater motives were. Um, but I like how this gave a sense for that. It seems like she wants justice for the kids in Flea Bottom who are being forced to to fight, you know, in these arenas that Aegon seems to enjoy and, you know, the other things that kids are subjected to in the city. Um, I liked the idea that her motive was for some greater social change and that she, even just as a, as a common person, wanted to flex the influence that she had in order to create change and how she even kind of threatened Otto with that, with the extent of her network and her power and influence. I love when she says, you know, my condolences on the passing of your king and Otto is just really taken aback by that. Like he's shocked to see that she knows that. He's like, how does how does she know that? You know, it's because she has a network of people. You know, she has power. You know, knowledge is power, as Littlefinger, Peter Baelish would say in Game of Thrones. So I, I like that a lot. Gave a sense of the extent of her power and her influence and a sense of her motives. I also really liked when she said there is no power what, but what the people allow you to take. Again, it was a very powerful, very Varys-esque line from Game of Thrones because Varys says that power is an illusion. It's a shadow on the wall and power only resides where people think it resides. And he says, you no, know, and a very small man can cast a very large shadow. I felt like Masario was saying something kind of similar, you know, like... You may think, Otto, as hand of the king, that you have power, and you may think the king has power, but she's saying, truly, it's us, the people, who, you know, first of all, we outnumber you, but also, if we get this knowledge about you, we can use it against you, and that can give us a power over you that you might not have anticipated, and she's basically saying, you know, 
when you crown Aegon, remember that that happened because of me. You know, I knew where he was and protected him. Um, I thought it was really interesting. We're seeing the power of the small folk, the, the common folk, and how they can compete with the royal power and stand up for themselves in some sense. Really fascinating to see. And then when they find Aegon and... It's heartbreaking seeing how he's literally running and literally hiding from his responsibility of becoming king. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how this system, this feudal system, traps everyone in roles that they don't want. And it's sad, you know, we shouldn't be crowning a king who is running away and hiding and trying not to be king and begging to not be king. And the way that he grabs, you know, his brother's face and says you know, just, just let me leave, like, I'll run away and you'll never see me again, it, it was heartbreaking, you know, it kind of made me, me, made me feel for him in a sense, because this is just a system that traps everyone, and makes everyone unhappy, and puts them in roles they don't want, and yeah, goes back to, to what I was saying earlier, that this system shouldn't be crowning people, and putting people in power who don't want it, and who wouldn't be good for it, like Aegon. I also wondered why Aemon stopped Aegon from running when Aemon wanted to be king and Aegon didn't. So if if he let Aegon get away, you know, and get on a ship and run away, it's like perhaps Aemon could have been king. Like it made me wonder why he didn't do that, like why he didn't let Aegon run. Um, I wonder if part of that was because like unless they could prove Aegon was dead, maybe they wouldn't have let Aemon take the throne. Maybe they would have just continued their search for Aegon and, and he knew that so maybe maybe he didn't have a chance in that sense like I couldn't really understand why Aemon stopped Aegon in that sense um if he just thought he wouldn't get away with it letting him go or if it wouldn't work you know they wouldn't stop looking for him um but I'm not sure moving on now to Laris and Alicent's scene it was really heartbreaking seeing how nervous you know Allison got when Laris showed up like she knew what he wanted and what was going to happen you know clearly this is something that's been going on for some time and seeing throughout the scene how he refuses to continue to give her information until she you know continues to expose her feet um it's you know heartbreaking and also really fascinating seeing how you know this is the queen this is someone who's supposed to have ultimate power over people but because Laris has established this this you know exchange with her and you know giving her information that she wants and you know in exchange you know he goes and he kills someone for her perhaps you know and does her bidding um and how in exchange you know he demands demands this from her for her to expose herself for his own pleasure um you know it, it's heartbreaking you know clearly Allison doesn't want to be doing this but you know seeing how we would think that someone with royal power like the queen would have ultimate control you know that's what we would assume over others and that other people wouldn't be able to um manipulate and have control over them but we see in this scene that that's that's not the case of course that someone can you know manipulate and exploit someone even as powerful as the queen for their own means which is really heartbreaking also really interesting to see and then later we see someone you know burning down this building i wonder if it was laris killing masaria or you know killing her spies now he said you have to take out this problem at the head um which you know masaria seemed to be the run one running the show so i i do wonder if masaria is dead and if that was him burning down you know where she lives or or where she works out of moving on now to aegon's coronation you know i just felt so bad for these poor common people you know they're just having a normal day and then all of a sudden they're getting yelled at by like these gold cloaks who are like 
herding them like cattle all of a sudden. They're not even telling them what's going on. They're just like, move, like, go this way, go over here. Like, like, imagine you're just like doing the laundry or something. Like, you're just a normal person having a normal day. And all of a sudden, you're, you're getting ordered to, to go somewhere. And you, you don't even know why. Like, these poor people, like, they didn't even understand what's going on. Their whole day was disrupted. Like, felt bad for them. Um... Uh, moving on to the the carriage ride with Aegon and Alicent on their way to the dragon pit. Um, I liked how even Aegon wasn't convinced that Viserys named him king. Um, it is sad, you know, he says it's because his father didn't like him. He's like, father had 20 years to name me king, you know, why wouldn't he do it then? And he just kind of laughs at Alicent and is like, yeah, no, even I don't think Viserys named me king. Um... But it's sad, you know, all of a sudden he just turns to Alicent and asks, do you love me? You know, and I, I think this goes back to what I talked about in a previous episode of, you know, to what extent is Aeon a product of his experiences? You know, to what extent did he become the monster that he is because of, you know, parental neglect and, and lack of love or even, you know, abuse that we've seen Alicent inflict on him? It's an interesting question and sad to see how that how that neglect clearly has had an impact on him. Uh, I couldn't figure out why he was so interested in the dagger. I wasn't sure if it's just because it's it's a weapon, something violent, if that was what he liked about it. He seems to have this interest in violence, you know, when, when we see that he likes to watch these kids fighting in Flea Bottom. I wondered if it's because perhaps he can read High Valyrian and he can read maybe Aegon's um, prophecy on it um so I couldn't understand why he was interested in it or maybe just because it was something that belonged to his father it was something powerful maybe he knows that it's kind of an heirloom that's been passed down um I, I yeah I couldn't really understand why he was interested in it but I wonder if it related to the prophecy at all if he could read it or perhaps if he touches the dagger and can see the prophecy um I'm not sure I mean I've heard some suspicions where some people think that Viserys can touch the dagger and, and see things like he sees in his dreams and his his prophetic, you know, dragon dreams as he interprets them, if it's a similar thing with Aegon. I I don't know. Moving on to the coronation scene, uh, something that I was thinking about, you know, they're in this huge dragon pit and it's just auto-speaking. Like, it's not like they have microphones or a speaker or anything. I'm like, how can anyone in here hear Otto? I'm just like, dude, no one's going to hear you past, like, the third row. You know that most of the people in this dragon pit are turning to their neighbor and being like, what did he say? Like, I couldn't help but think about that when he's just yelling his announcements across the dragon pit. I'm like, probably no one can hear him. <laughs> and then moving on to Aegon's entrance... You know, I thought the the music they played here was beautiful. You know, the subtitles say it's very powerful music, obviously very royal music. Um, and how they have like this this ceremony of these these swords. Um, and as he's walking down, you know, he has this evil look in his eye, and he's looking up at his mother. I thought that was interesting. If that was some of his resentment for her, perhaps. You know, maybe the way he sees it. His mother is putting him in a role that he doesn't want of being king. You know, just like Otto put his daughter, Alicent, into a role that she didn't want as queen. So I wonder if there's that interesting parallel there. And um, if Aegon was kind of feeling resentment for his mother in that sense. And that's why he was kind of glaring up at her while he was walking through these swords up to, to be crowned. I thought it was interesting, too, how Helena refused to look at Aegon while he was being crowned. You know, that she perhaps is afraid of him, doesn't have much of a connection to him. You know, she said in uh, the last episode that he mostly just ignores her. Like, he clearly doesn't like her. And calls her an idiot um, two episodes ago. So, you know, that, that, was, that was interesting and, and sad. You know, she couldn't look at him. I also thought it was interesting that to me, Aegon looked afraid as he was being crowned. 
Um, it reminded me of when Rhaenyra was named heir in the first episode, and she seemed to kind of have a look of fear on her face um, afterwards, at the end of the episode. And I wonder if that's what Aegon is feeling, too. Like, he's feeling the weight of what's happening, that he's becoming king, and that's a very dangerous thing, and his life is in danger because of it. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, I thought it was funny how throughout this scene, everyone kind of hesitates to clap. You know, Otto says something announcing Aegon being king and all these things, and <laughs> there's just these long pauses where he's waiting for everyone to clap, and they kind of just mumble to each other and hesitantly just start clapping. Like, maybe they don't really know exactly how to feel about all of this, and or, you know, maybe they just can't hear him, <laughs> like, like I was mentioning before. Um, I just thought it was kind of funny. Almost felt like comedic relief, you know, seeing that people don't really know what to do, exactly what's going on. They kind of hesitate. They're like, okay, I guess we should, I guess we should applaud now. Aegon the King, okay. Like, it was just funny. But it's also sad saying, you know, this is a society that it's not like these people, these common people are given a voice or the ability to voice their concerns to the government and have them care about them. Clearly the people in power aren't for the most part thinking about the the needs of the common people and what's in their best interest so it's like it's kind of sad thinking just as this common person you could be going about your day and you're like oh all of a sudden we have this new leader like you know perhaps they've never even seen Aegon in person some of them or most of them um you know it's it's sad how in this system again another problem with this system is the common people the people who are being ruled over ruled over by these by this government by these people are are not kept in the loop you know they're not given information about what's happening things just sort of happen you know they're sort of just a new leader and they just kind of have to accept it and that's sad you know they have no say over who their ruler is and how they're going to be treated by them um so yeah, just kind of interesting when you try and think about this from the perspective of the common people. You know, we see this from the perspective of these royals. You know, we're in the Red Keep with them. But imagine being a common person in this world. You have no idea what's going on in the walls of the castle. You have no idea what the royals are up to or what their deal is. And then all of a sudden, in your normal day, you're herded into this building. And you're like, you're told your former leader's dead. And here's this new king. It's like... I can imagine it'd be kind of jarring. Like, I wonder if that's why they weren't clapping. They're like, we barely know what's going on, and we barely know what this guy is, but I guess he's our, our king now, you know? That's sad to think about, that these people really just don't have rights and don't have a, a voice in this world and in this um, system of government. Uh, after Aegon is crowned, it is a really beautiful shot, seeing him with his arms outstretched, um, you know, he's smiling as he's thrusting his sword in the air. It's kind of interesting seeing just how quickly he shifted from being, you know, glaring up at his mother angry and then looking afraid as he's being crowned. And now he's smiling at this sea of people in front of him applauding. It's it's like he already loves power, which is kind of scary because he seems like the kind of person who shouldn't be given power like this. So it's, it's interesting seeing just how quickly... Um, his feelings about it all change the moment he sees all these people cheering for him. Perhaps it's the the approval and attention and everything that he that he always wanted. You know, perhaps he's seen that and he's like embracing the idea of being like, oh yeah, now I have this power. You know, and that's scary because he's not someone it seems who should have that power. And then Allison smiles. You know. Maybe this really is what she wanted all along for her son to be king, but she just wanted it to be in the way she imagined, in, in her own terms, and not involving the death of Rhaenyra and her children. Um, something else interesting here is I noticed in this scene especially, perhaps other people have noticed it before and I haven't, that big scar that Aegon seems to have across his face, like on the left side of his face, do you guys know where that came from? I have never noticed it really until this episode and particularly in this scene after he's crowned. Like I I don't remember a situation where he could have gotten this scar where where that came from. So I was a little confused about that. Um again, the music played when he's crowned is just incredible, you know, very sinister 
triumphant music definitely gives you a sense of, you know, perhaps what's to come as Aegon becoming king and the kind of disaster disastrous consequences that could um that could come from that um and let me tell you the moment that Rhaenys and Melis burst through the floor in this moment I I screamed like I gasped my jaw hit the floor I did not see this coming but man was it such like a, a beautiful twist to see oh I was so happy to see you know Rhaenys interfering in this in this coronation that shouldn't be happening it should be Rhaenyra being crowned in this moment she's the rightful heir and it's sad like this is all happening and Rhaenyra doesn't even know yet that her father is even dead you know she is away in Dragonstone unbeknownst to her everything is happening and you know imagine this one day your father you know was kind of on the brink of death and she goes back to Dragonstone and is planning on returning on Dragonback, but then Rhaenys is going to show up and be like, actually, your father's dead and Aegon's already been crowned. She's going to be like, excuse me, what? <laughs> like, that's so sad, you know? Um, so I loved seeing Rhaenys just bust in. It's the best moment of the episode for me and, and for many people, I'm sure. Um, she just looked so powerful, you know, on top of this huge dragon and she's wearing this armor and she's just stone-faced staring at the greens. Like, she really is putting her foot down and showing, like, this is what side of the war to come that I'm on. I'm Team Rhaenyra. And, you know, it would have been so easy for her to just say Dracarys and kill them, which I was definitely cheering for that in this moment. I was like, just say Dracarys and there won't be any war and everything will be fine and we'll crown Rhaenyra and no conflict. Um... But I thought it was interesting how in the inside the episode they said that she didn't do that because, you know, of her morals and she didn't want to do something like that to another mother. Which I thought was really interesting, you know, it shows Rainey's mercy. And I think that shows just how, you know, good of a person she is and can be. Having that moral standard where, you know, she has the power to hurt all these people, her her enemies in the war to come, and she chooses not to, and she chooses mercy. That definitely says a lot about her and a lot about her character, a, a lot of good things, you know, very merciful person. But yeah, she looked so powerful. I loved seeing her image, you know, the outline of her just emerge from the, the smoke and dust and her just stare them down. Everyone's terrified, you know, before this beast that you know, they're at the mercy of in this moment, and not amazing acting of Olivia Cook after this dragon is, you know, roaring in her face, and she just tears up, you know, there's so much fear in this moment, it's amazing how dragons in this way can remind people in the show, it seems like, of their own mortality, and how small they are, and how easily they could be killed by these huge, you know, beautiful beasts and um I thought that was really interesting and definitely what I thought about in this moment and like these are some of the most powerful people in the realm and look at them compared to a dragon and how easily they could be killed and how much they're at a mer the mercy of this huge beautiful thing you know they're not it's like all of a sudden their royal power doesn't matter you know their status doesn't matter because you know who what's a person compared to a dragon, right? As far as, as power and what that dragon could do to someone. So I thought that was really interesting, making these big, powerful people look so small with a dragon. Um, and yeah, I had so much love and respect for Rhaenys in this moment, really standing up for herself, you know, showing the side of this war she's on and taking off, you know, to go tell Rhaenyra what's going on after they tried to imprison Rhaenys in the castle. You know, she was not going to stand for that, and she was going to take charge and do what she thinks is right, and I just love that. You know, this this scene, this episode, really made me respect and look at Rhaenys in a way that I, I hadn't as much before, I guess. For most of the series, I guess I just had the feeling that Rhaenys kind of took a back seat. You know, she... Of course, she still had her opinions about things, you know, her and, and Corlys would get into arguments about how they should go about things. But more than anything, she seemed to be 
a bystander, you know, and things things would happen, of course, whether or not she wanted them. And I think part of that is the patriarchy and part of that is this system, you know. Of course, she wasn't comfortable with the idea of marrying off Lena to Viserys, but it's what Corlys wanted and it seemed like something she felt like she had to just accept. So, like, of course, I'm not saying it was always, like, her choice to just sit back and and be more of an observer. You know, I think part of that does come down to her her gender and the way women are treated in this world. Um, but it is so satisfying and so nice seeing her seeing her stand up and take charge in this episode more than ever, more than she has so far in the series, I think. And it made me just really love her and really respect her more more than ever. You know, I feel like this shows that Rainey's truly should have been queen. She not only was she the rightful heir in many ways, she it seems like has the attitude of someone who could be queen. You know, she has her opinions and she knows what's right and she's gonna take charge and definitely now by this point in the story she's she's sick of sitting back and being at the mercy of others. No, she's gonna be in charge. Um and I like that. I like seeing that from her a lot and I'm excited to see what she's gonna do next and I'm excited to see what happens next episode, you know, season finale so sad that we're gonna have to say goodbye to new episodes of this show you know for about a year um that does give all the fans you know plenty of time to speculate on what we think is gonna happen next so um i'm very excited and it seems like this next episode is gonna be all about you know team black team rhaenyra the same way this episode was all about the greens so i look forward to what's next um, these were all my thoughts on episode 9. I hope y'all enjoyed it. I would love to hear your thoughts down in the comments. You know, what What did you think of this episode? What was your favorite part? Do you agree with my analysis or disagree? You know, let me know what you think. You can follow me on YouTube, Spotify, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, all um, at The Spring Dream. And I look forward to seeing you guys soon. Thanks for tuning in.